Welcome to This One Life. Today on the show, Simon Newton. Simon is a former member of the British Armed Forces with numerous deployments, a security consultant, bodyguard to celebrities like Kendall Jenner and Michael Jackson, actor, for example, appearing as Sherlock Holmes, and entrepreneur, having founded his own security company and a clothing brand. This is part one of our conversation. You will get to hear how his quite unusual life in the army as private security and as bodyguard was, the most holy shit moments, how it feels to be under the constant threat of attack, and his best tips, how to stay out of physical conflict as untrained person in urban areas, as well as what to do if you can't avoid the physical confrontation. This episode is both entertaining and highly practical. Enjoy. Simon, you have quite an extensive background in the military. What was the scariest, most holy shit situation during that military time? Can you take us through the day, what happened, how you felt? Yeah, I think in the military, in the British Army, I went to Iraq 2003 for the Iraq invasion back then. So I did go on operations with the army. During war, a lot of stuff going on and lots of things could get you killed. But I think one of my biggest ones was at the end of the war fighting phase, all the coalition, so US and British forces started changing what they was doing to start the security and the rebuild of the country. And I was involved in a job then, which was looking after a couple of, I call them US officials, which were looking for weapons of or signs of weapons of mass destruction. And we would go out to informants, houses and places and locations to, to investigating what they were saying was there. And we didn't find anything, long story short, over the whole period of time. But there was one other time where the governor, the Iraqi governor of Basra in southern Iraq at the time, was held hostage by the local militia. And we was only a four-man team anyway, and we, we was working in civilian clothing because of the people we were looking after. But we was like the only people on hand to, or close enough to be able to help him out. And I always remember, we used to have a box in the back of the car and it had all of our extra kit. We didn't normally break out because we didn't want people to know what we was doing and what we was up to too much. So we used to like the weapons and the grenades, smoke and all the other bits and pieces we had in there, always kept locked away for hopefully the day that wouldn't come. But that day it did. So we, once the box got lifted out the back of the vehicle, and someone said, I asked what was going on and they told me. And I remember thinking, well, this is definitely going <laughs> to, this is definitely going to hurt this one. And I was only 23 years old. And for a split second in, in my time, I remember thinking, because obviously you don't really want to be there. <laughs> and then I, I put myself in this position. I joined the military when I was younger. All I ever wanted to do, I was an army cadet when I was younger. All I ever wanted to do was be in the military. I chose to come out here as well. And I thought you can't wimp out on it now if you like you just got to get on with it and do it and that was my first time really when I knew that I was going to have to do something deliberate if you like which was going to get me more than likely going to get me in quite a bit of trouble and that that didn't turn out too bad in the end we went we we, we did the job and we stayed at the place to secure it over for 24 hours as well that night we got we got a small attack at night time which wasn't anything particularly big. And then in the morning, we handed it over to 
the, like the conventional army, the British army, but had uh, an infantry company out there that come out and took took care of the place. But we was only really there for protection on that job, but we ended up doing doing that. But I, th I think that was my first. I've seen lots of other stuff before that, that yeah, people dying, people being shot, but nothing really where I felt I was in jeopardy. Nothing where I thought I was going to get hurt, but that day I, I knew I was going into something that potentially could get me killed in the next sort of half an hour. So I felt a lot different about that. But once you do one, and because it went very well, I think it gives you the confidence. And then I was after that, I was in a number of positions, more so with private security. I was in a lot more worse positions, to be honest, than I was in the army. But right back to that experience, that kind of already prepared me for a lot of it. If that has been a bad situation in the army, but you say you've been in a lot more worse situation afterwards. What is then a lot more worse situation? So in the private security world, you're a civilian for starters. So you're not in the military. So although we was working in Iraq and I worked in Afghanistan, private security as well. But if we talk about Iraq briefly, because it's where I started with the military as well, you don't have the support of tanks, helicopters, another 500 guys or whatever, the medical stuff, the, the camp, you don't have all that support. So obviously you've got a certain amount of support, but it's only minimal. The Americans, because I worked in Baghdad quite a lot, which was in the north, which was controlled by the US Army, pretty much. They would come and get you in a medivac helicopter if you've been hit, but you wasn't always first on the list because if they had their own guys to deal with, obviously they got first picking. So there was a lot of that. If you got in ambushes, for instance, it was only what we had on us, the ammunition and the guys. We, we used to have about 12 guys on a team out there for that. And all we had is what we had on the vehicles and ammunition-wise. If that had run out, we were, we was out. The only thing we could hope for was maybe, a, again, a US convoy or something else might come along and help us out. But we used to call in what we call a contact report, which when you get hit, you call it in. And we had a transponder on the trucks as well, where you press two buttons at once and it sends off a signal to control center like an operations room and it gives them your good reference and where you are to say you've been hit and then ultimately they call you back and then you try and let them know what you need and if you need help don't need help but sometimes it'd be hours before we could get help to us especially when we was out on the main ms main supply routes going out to jordan or down to q8 when you're out in the middle of nowhere if we got hit by eds the improvised explosive devices on the side of the road, which we did quite often on that job you're stuck you got to make sure if anyone gets hurt you got to provide the medical attention um to them and keep them alive long enough to get them to a hospital we used to always try and keep people alive the general rule was for an hour but as time went on, an hour still wasn't long enough for us to be able to get them to somewhere safe on occasions. It used to be testing times when you did when you got in trouble with private security because you only had what you had there on the day. With the military, you had what you had there on the day, plus tons of support, including air support, artillery, waters, if you wanted it. We didn't have anything like that. The only support we had is if the military could come out and help us. And like I say, we wasn't first on the list. Quite often they did come out and they were really good, but... There were times that they couldn't get out because they were maybe in a lot of trouble themselves in the same sort of area. You talk about all of this in a very lightweight way and with a smile on your face. Uh, but I would imagine that being in, although it's an armored vehicle, but driving an armored vehicle, knowing that the chances are not bad that you get hit by an ambush or get hit by an IED, 
that must be nerve wracking or do you just get used to it? Like, how do you stay calm? What, what's your mindset if you are out on that road somewhere out there in the middle of nowhere that there's a decent risk? If it happens, it's going to be, it's going to be bad. What do you think? How do you calm yourself? I, I think what you said then, a lot of it, you do get used to it and it's not a great thing to get used to, to be honest, but you do, you forget that what you're doing, I used to lose a lot of weight from just sitting in vehicles because I think you, your adrenaline and your all the emotions you're going through all the time, but maybe you're not even realising. It just used to, it just takes a toll on you, I think. But when I first started that job, I think everything was fine up until the first vehicle got hit by the first IED. And then you think, okay, so this, this has happened and it probably will continue happening. So you start maybe looking at the job slightly different then because until then you've only you're only thinking about what you've been told about by other people. When you actually go out and maybe you might get lucky and have a few days without one. But then when you do get one you think, okay, this includes me as well now. This isn't just the people who were talking to me before. That's the first hurdle to get over. And then after that, depending on how often it happens, it's like I say on that job, probably once a week we used to get hit, sometimes more. Some guys got hit every day. You just get used to it. It's either for you or it's not for you. I don't think it's something you can train yourself for. And the problem with it is, and this is when I changed job in the end, I always said to anybody in the team, the day you've had enough, go home. Don't You can't be somewhere like that where you're half in, half out. Because when it all goes wrong, there's not many of us as it is in the team. So everyone needs to be given 110% and it has to be 110% up for a fight. Uh, and to sort out the problem. And if you're potentially don't really want to get out of the vehicle because you've got to the stage where you've had enough or whatever, it's not fair on everyone else. So you just got to be constantly up for it and, and constantly up for what could happen. And obviously what could happen is unfortunately is you know, people do die. Every gun truck we had there on that job had two body bags on the truck. And if we run out of body bags, we'd use sleeping bags. So that kind of tells you the type of for private security job it was quite dangerous it's crazy as a civilian who has no experience about that i mean generally you you, you can think and can try to put yourself into that position but there's no way that you emotionally can get to a place where you understand how that is what were the characteristics of the best and worst teams you had to work with during your military or private security time yeah, so all the teams of the military are good because obviously everyone's trained in their different areas and everyone's worth their weight in gold. In Iraq private security, I used, I had 30 Gurkhas, ex-Gurkha soldiers, um, Nepalese, um, and like four or five expats like myself. So the, predominantly the, the security force, if you like, was Gurkhas, which were really good. They were great. Most of them spoke English. Most of them were in the British Army at some stage as a, as a Gurkha, as a Sergeant Major or a Sergeant or a Corporal. Some of them had done more than what we had done, in, you know, done 22 years in the Army. So they were really good. When I moved up into Baghdad and changed contract, I did a, a job for the Japanese government. On that, there was four expats and we used Iraqi locals as the extra sort of security on the vehicles driving and everything else. So that got more difficult, obviously. That's probably the worst, really. Language barrier for one. They know the area better than you do, so they know a lot of people. Quite often, guys wouldn't make it into work. They'd get killed and killed on the way into work because the insurgency found out who they were or they'd do them at, kill them at their houses with their family. So we had to protect them from that all the time, which was difficult. But also certain areas of Iraq, 
we used to have trouble getting them to go there sometimes because they knew it was dangerous and they knew what's going to happen and, and they didn't want to go. So we, we had to navigate all them issues with that particular setup of team just because of they were from the country because they had a price on their heads if anyone knew they were working for westerners they were just killed and that was the end of it really you can understand that they are somewhat concerned about their security but yeah. it makes it challenging running a team where you have to manage all of these specific specifics uh, about the people is it are and obviously that's a very broad generalization but are private security people the way how the movies show them so that means typically how the movie shows them are very well trained and concentrated on the situation but the moment they get off they they're these enjoying life partying drinking stuff like that because you have this combination of every day it could be my, my last day and on the other hand then you are a physically fit trained person with a i would assume reasonably high income yeah Yeah, yeah, and you do, obviously you don't spend anything when you're away because there's nothing to spend it on. Yeah, potentially that's pretty much correct. It was for me. I know some of the guys were married and had families and stuff, so they would go home and just go on holiday. They still normally take their family away on holiday somewhere else, and and you could argue it's still a bit of a party doing that. But for me, yeah, I used to spend a lot of time at home. But when I every now and then I'd do a trip to Brazil, Mexico, Thailand, and we'd meet all the few of the lads would meet up and we'd all fly out there at the same time whoever was on leave at that time. But yeah, it was for me. You, you got plenty of money in your pocket. I got to experience loads. And that was a good good thing about it. I used to do eight weeks on and four weeks off. So in my four weeks off, it's a good quality four weeks. I could do what I wanted any day. I had plenty of money. I had all that time. I didn't have to be anywhere. I saw my family briefly and that was it. I was off again doing something all the time. Yeah, so can I imagine in that way, so if you go off with your friends to Brazil or wherever that, do you know that scene? I think it was in Bad Boys 2 where they run into that, was it Bad Boys? Man, I really don't want to misrepresent it. I think it was where they run into the nightclub and they start trouble there. And then they, they, I, I think they start trouble with a football player and he has this whole offensive line. They, they're all the bros who help each other out. And so you go there with four, five, six of those well-trained friends. So better make sure that you don't mess with us. Yeah, we used to. We're, you have a tendency of being used to those sort of situations. I know when we, was in, when we, we went to Mexico and the, the, the whole way there, People kept saying, it's fine if you stay around Cancun, just don't go into Mexico City. And then the tour operator, don't go to Mexico City. The people in the hotel, don't go to Mexico City. For all the guests stay in the hotel, yeah, it's great here, but don't go into Mexico City. First night, where do we all go? <laughs> Mexico City. It's, you, you do live that life a little bit. Nothing happened and it was fine, but you could see... We, the same as Brazil, on Rio, don't go any more than three roads back because it starts to get a bit dangerous and now straight away we're five roads back. And I don't know why, but that's how it, how it was for my life was back then, everywhere we used to go. We didn't go just as, we didn't do it to, to go against what people were telling us. We just did it because we knew we were probably going to experience something that everyone else wasn't going to experience. That puts this to a good situation for a question that i had on my list and that is with all your experience let's talk about avoiding physical conflict how can normal people in urban environments avoid or get out of situations that have the potential to turn into physical conflicts how should i behave the the, the biggest thing with that is It's not an easy thing to do in a way because you, to, to be able to avoid it, you've got to recognize it. 
So you've got to be able to, you've got to be someone that even when you're walking along with your boyfriend, girlfriend, maybe you've got, maybe you're on your phone doing something. If you're not aware of what's going on around you all the time, then it's going to be very difficult. You're going to be probably reacting when something's already happened, which really is a bit too late. For me, I noticed, bearing in mind, given my, my, my job was for all those years, I, I notice things all the time. If someone steps on a train, doesn't look right, I know. If someone stood by a doorway in a shop or something, it doesn't look right, I know. I just notice, I don't notice every single thing, but I notice a lot more than probably what a normal person would notice. When people are coming up close behind me, I know they're there. When they're either side of me, I just know they're there. So awareness is obviously the biggest thing. And then if you if if you can detect things like that, you can cross the road or you can go a different way or you can or just be ready for when you walk past to make sure if you've got a phone in your hand, maybe put your phone in your pocket for when you walk past that person. So you, you do need awareness because obviously you can't take action if you haven't seen what the threat is in front of you or wherever it may be. But also, if you do, like most of my time as a bodyguard, particularly in London, in the UK, I never had to punch or real physically get hold of anyone to re repel an attack everything i done was verbal just managing the situation normally before it got to it and on the occasions that it did i just moved myself into a place where the person couldn't get hold of us and just talk to them i never really had to i never really had to fight to be honest i was quite lucky in that respect so i always found talking to people just being, you're always going to get that one that doesn't care, always oversteps the mark. But generally, most people, if you confront someone and let them know that you've seen them, that they might be doing something wrong, they back down. You are 100 kilo plus, 110 kilo plus, well-trained person, <laughs> serious looking, having that attitude, the confidence of all that training. I can imagine that if you go into some sort of conversation or interaction with other people that some or most of them will back up. What do we normal humans do? Is it really the thing that you said before? Hey, it's situational awareness and make sure that you yeah, almost literally take a long detour, a big detour around any type of issues, or is there still anything yeah. else that, that I could do as a normal person? The thing is, you don't want to get into physical contact with anybody because it, obviously there's classes and martial arts and all this stuff you can do. The problem with it is, unless you're into a, a form of martial arts as a hobby, so you do it religiously every week, every month, and work your way up from maybe a child up to an adult as a black belt or whatever, um, Anything you learn, you get skill fade, which basically obviously means if you don't keep doing it, then you'll lose the consistency and you'll you'll lose being able to do it correctly and possibly properly. A lot of the stuff for me, I think that when you teach people, there are things you can teach people, but if you're teaching any more than pushes and pulls and, and anything more than that, if you don't do it enough, it's not going to be an effect. Ways to take knives off people and all this sort of thing is great. But if you don't if you don't keep that practice up every week or every month, the day that someone steps out in the street with a knife, it's unlikely you're going to be able to do that well enough to be able to disarm him. And also without, without cutting yourself and whatever else. I think the biggest thing is to just never try to get into a physical, never put yourself in harm's way. Always keep yourself at least an arm's distance away. So if anyone pulls in, always create distance if you're talking to someone and you're not sure. Make sure you've got a bit of distance there. It just gives you a little bit of time to react. But most of the time it is. Cross the road. If you see it happening, 
cross the road. Don't bother, just don't bother getting anywhere near it. So what you can do is you keep an eye on them when you cross the road because if they now cross the road, then you've probably got a good idea that they wanted to get something from you, which again, you've got to be ready for. But in terms of, you can run if you want. At night time, again, it's different. Stay in lit areas, try and stay in areas, particularly in cities, where there's lots of cars and lots of people. So things will still happen, but that limits it slightly just because if you start walking down dark alleyways in your in the city wherever country you may live in you know you're going to be asking for well if unless you can't look after yourself then i certainly wouldn't suggest doing it but in terms of repelling an attack not really just try and create distance whether that's with a push or a shove unless you're someone of course who's trained in martial arts or something similar but but could be useful, but for an everyday person who's probably not a particularly aggressive person or, or violent person, literally just try and try, keep, keep an eye on what you're doing. Don't ever wear, anyone who wears earphones when they're walking down the street should be shot. Because, <laughs> it takes all your situational because, awareness away. <laughs> yeah, because in, especially in capital cities, and we get it all the time in London, when I'm walking along the street, if I'm walking quite, I walk quite fast, so I walk a bit quicker than the average person. So because of that, I pass people quite a lot. And particularly women with handbags on their back with their earphones in, and you can get right up to their backside for at least a minute where I'm trying to get past, and they don't even know I'm there. And the whole time, they don't even know I'm there. And I think I could have gone in your bag, I could have grabbed you around, around the throat, around the neck. All these things, you, and they're totally oblivious to you being there. But at the same time, there's another woman or a man walking past, done exactly the same on the other side. So dangerous wearing earphones, in a, particularly in a capital city. Crossing roads anyway, just because of cars, you can't hear them properly, especially now with electric cars as well. Definitely earphones should be in a no, <laughs> but people do it all the time. And, and it's even if you, sometimes people wear one just in case their phone rings but even that's still blocking your hearing even if it's nothing coming through it it's still blocking your hearing so i, I would always suggest definitely but for, for the first part of any situational awareness if you're a phone user and you have your earphones in get rid of them because that, that will change everything instantly to be honest what happens if you were not able to uh, avoid this dangerous situation and it clearly seems as if it's going into physical conflict let's say it's unarmed so let's make it simpler no, yeah, no pistols yeah. no knives and i'm not a martial arts expert maybe i'm even a, a, a woman or let's just say somebody who's physically clearly weaker as a male aggressive attacker anything that i can do there that i should do anything particularly with knives and blades it's not always an easy thing to do because it might not be there, but if there's anything you can pick up in the street to use, traffic cones, for instance, or even the shell off the top of a bin lid or something, anything you can pick up and use just so you've got something to put between the blade and yourself. So if you do lunge forward with it, it's not cutting your arms and hands up. You're keeping, you're also keeping an extra distance depending on what it is you've managed to pick up. When... When you haven't got stuff to pick up, because sometimes you will, there might be loads of things you might be able to, if you look around, because it hasn't got to be anything, it hasn't got to be like a, a baseball bat or a stick, but just anything you can literally pick up and use as a bit, use for a bit of extra distance, really. But if it comes to it, again, knives are a tricky one because you can kick. If you use your feet, it's less, but you can still slash your legs. And quite often with knife attacks, you won't actually know. 
it's a little bit Hollywood where people could jump out an alleyway and they stand there like that with a knife. I'm going to kill you. Quite often now, they just walk straight up to him. Before you even know you've been stabbed, the knife will already be in you. And if we take the knife out of the game and say it's a fist, it's a fist fight or anything like that. Fists, I think the best one for someone who's not a fighting person, for me, the best one is if you can do it, just push on the chest, on their chest, as hard as you can. So even if they step back one or two paces, that's a meter there, and then you can turn and run. That's the best thing you can do because as you're doing that, if you step back as, tight, as well as when you pushed, you could argue that's nearly three or four paces between you, and then you can turn and run. And that's if you don't want to obviously get into physical, if you're not you know, a physical person when it comes to punching and hitting. That just got to create the distance. Anything that a physically clearly weaker and likely also slower person could do, I understand that's really a bad situation to be in. So anything that can turn a very bad situation into a slightly less bad situation, like maybe? Realistically, probably not. And what I would say is if you was a slightly weaker person, um, wherever it is you're going at that time of night or that time of day, if it's known for people like that, for things like that happening or if, it, if it's common then takes just make sure you take someone with you <laughs> just go with someone sorry to interrupt you it was it was a halfway serious conversation that i had with my wife once and we talked about hey what happens if we're on the street and we get into such a situation and she was she said hey i, I don't know i can pick up something or anything like this. and and i said hey so my wife isabella i said is a the best thing you can do is you run and I try to hold them back or anything like that because I, if I also have to worry about your physical safety yeah, while I'm in the right. conflict, yeah. that's the worst thing that happens to yeah. me. So you run, I'm going to buy you time. Yeah, no, and I agree with that. If I'm with my girlfriend, if I always think that if anything's happened, I'll say, I always would think, just you just run and keep running. Don't look back. Don't turn around. Yeah. Just Call keep running. Call the police. That helps me. Yeah, straight away. That's one person now I know I haven't got to worry about. So that is that is the right thing to do. Obviously, where it would be the wrong thing to do is if the person left there wasn't capable. <laughs> but if they are capable, then certainly I would suggest that's a good idea. Yeah. I'm not even that capable here, but still I have the feeling that just getting her out of the equation, maybe she can get somebody to help, but just I don't have to worry about her will give yeah. me enough time. I'm decently fast, I'm agile, I, I might be able to buy time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The problem with it as well is not... It's not really any one thing that I can say to people, do this with, if this happens and if that happens, because quite a lot of stuff is dependent on where you are, the type of person who's attacking you, what they're attacking you with, how many of them, how many of how many people with you, what your physical abilities, do you have a vehicle with you, are there other people in all these things would depend on what I would do. So to say, is there something I could tell someone to repel an attack if they was on their own? Not really, because there will be, but I, without all the other dynamics to it, it's very difficult to say what you probably should be doing in that situation. Appreciate the tips, and I hope it doesn't come to that situation. Yeah, well, and that's the other thing. Just, yeah, just hope it doesn't come to that as well. With situational awareness and no headphones. This was part one of the conversation. In part two, Simon and I will discuss the most nerve-wracking situation during his time as bodyguard, the upsides and downsides of fame, his simple formula for when fame is good and when it's bad, his experiences as 
actor in Hollywood movies, as well as his simple, inspiring mindset towards entrepreneurship and life. What does happiness mean to someone who has seen poverty, death, wealth, and fame? 